We are all imperiled by the climate emergency, but some of us are clearly more threatened than others. Human and non-human animals and entire ecosystems are under duress. It's hard to know exactly where to place the emphasis in sketching the contours of an ongoing struggle for revolutions in energy use that could prevent the devastation of runaway global heating, but acknowledging that the impact is extremely uneven might be the most imperative. Because there's an urgent need for us to reject the reigning energy regime of fossil fuel extraction, a group of authors and academics recently got together to imagine pathways out of our current impasse. The outcome of that meeting was this six-episode podcast series. In this final episode of Volatile Trajectories, you'll hear from Darren Barney, Walter Gordon, and Bob Johnson about how they define and defy the boundaries that exist between the interior and exterior of the university. Walter Gordon is an ideal provisional fellow in the Department of English at Stanford University, where he studies African-American literature, energy, and the environment. Walter was recently a postdoctoral fellow in the Public Energy Humanities at the University of Alberta. He's currently working on a book titled Prime Movers, Energy and Modernity in African-American Literature, which tracks the interlinked literary histories of King Cole and Jim Crow, among other entanglements of race and energy. Darren Barney is Professor and Grierson Chair in Communication Studies at McGill University. Barney's research concerns the forms and media of politics at the intersection of materials, energy, infrastructure, and environments. His current work involves an investigation of emerging formats for the storage, transportation, and use of bitumen in the Canadian oil patch, and infrastructural transformations in the Canadian grain sector. And Bob Johnson is the author of Carbon Nation, Fossil Fuels in the Making of American Culture, and Mineral Rights, an Archaeology of the Fossil Economy. His current work takes on the prevailing empiricist and alternative social constructivist paradigms in climate studies to reconceive climate as a hybridized object. Their conversation is a stirring confrontation with what Darren calls institutionalized knowledge practice and the agony of the obvious contradiction between occupying sites of hegemonic power and actively working against what Robin D.G. Kelly has recently called the prestige machine of academia. Barney talks about the nascent field of the energy humanities as a site of knowledge production where this conflict is felt in a particularly explosive way and suggests that it can be a field where experts in energy transition embrace the goal of producing a more oppositional, politically inflected, and radically inclusive iteration of the university. So let's start by asking what it might mean to imagine politics after academia, and why after academia? What is so terribly wrong with academia, as we know it, that we need to move beyond it? Must we only move forward into the future, or into the new? Or is there anything we want to keep or return to in what universities uh, might have lost over time? So I think we should begin in answering this question with setting out what we mean by academia. And for me, academia is a particular form of institutionalized knowledge practice and the type of subjects that are formed by and reproduce that practice in those institutions. It's obviously not the only form of knowledge practiced, institutionalized or otherwise, but it's an important and in some ways even a dominant one. I think academia has always occupied a contradictory position vis-a-vis -vis society or the social relations 
in which it's situated. On the one hand, academia has traditionally understood itself, at least, as a site of something like free, detached, critical ideas and knowledge practices. Though this has always been a kind of ideal with certain limits and uh, omission. Nevertheless, that's how academia has traditionally understood itself. But on the other hand, it's also been, and perhaps especially so now, a crucial institution for the social reproduction of society's dominant forms and existing relations. And so for, for critical academics, right, they've always existed in the agony of the contradiction between these two aspects of academia. They identify primarily, I think, with the first characteristic that I described, this idea of like free, detached, critical ideas. Uh, but they've always been anxious about their material complicity with the second characteristic of academia, that it's you know, implication in the social reproduction of dominant relations and dominant forms of social structure. And if they're very clever, they've not, they're not only kind of aware of this contradiction, but they're also, I think, aware of how the way in which they practice their identification with the first thing, with, the, with critical practices, actually constitutes their, their complicity with the second. Right? And this is, a, I think, a particular problem in the context of the critical energy humanities, for the critical energy humanities academic, and in the context of the carbon-intensive university and the university's service to a variety of environmentally unjust and destructive industries and practices. How do we maintain fidelity to that first ideal Right when our practice as academics simultaneously implicates us in that second characteristic of the academy? How do we escape it? Or, how sh or should we or can we capitalize on it? I think these are the questions, like if there is an after-academia, Right. If it, it's a kind of utopian or aspirational condition that's relieved of that agony of that contradiction. Darren, what you said about um, the, the kind of, um, you said the practice of scholars really, really made me think because when I, when I think about this problem of sort of the efficacy of the academy or, or sort of um, uh, it's how long is it for this world, right? Uh, one of the things that I think about is how frequently that question is framed as one of theory versus practice, mm -hmm. where the academic is a theoretical uh, being, <laughs> right? That, that, that an academic produces theory. Uh, you know, obviously, academics would produce all kinds of things, but in, in the loosest sense, right, academics produce theories about things rather than, for example, building a house, right? Um, and so I think what is important for me thinking about like what might come after academia is to really um, try to uh, internalize the fact that that's a false dichotomy right and that theory and practice inform each other completely right and that, that you can form theories out of your out of your practices right and that you can you can come up with different practices by theorizing right um, so to me it, it it's sort of like uh, if, even if academia goes away, I don't know if all of the tools that academics use will be lost. You know what I mean? Like just because the institution itself that supports these things is, is no longer or is in some other 
unrecognizable form, right, doesn't mean that critical thinking about, for example, literary texts will be happening, right? I think that's already happening in so many other places in the world, you know, online and, and, and other things that it's sort of not in danger of, of being dissipated, I think. Yeah, I think that's really insightful. I mean, in like both points, the, the second one that, that there are types of practices, including practices that kind of join theory and practice that are characteristic of, of academic life that, that could continue to be practiced outside the institutionalized context of the right. university. The evidence of that is, as you said, they already are <laughs> in a whole variety of domains and diverse settings. Um, and so one of our, one of the responses to that contradiction or that agony that I described is to kind of identify what those are and what they might look like under institutional conditions that are different than the ones enforced by the contemporary university and how we might retain what value we see in them and how they might develop when kind of lifted out of the constraints of that context, I think is also an interesting question. And I really love your observation about how we tend even ourselves to internalize the theory practice dichotomy when it's yeah. really a false one. And, um, and how that, I think that really contributes to this sense of anxiety or this sense right. of agony, the internalization of that. In, in, in uh, PC contributed to our discussions here this weekend, our colleague Casey Williams said this, he said, scholarship that has political aspirations but, is, but which is divorced from concrete political projects will always wrestle with doubts about its role and its efficacy. Mm. And it's, that to me is kind of a, a reminder that if one of our responses to this doubt that we have is to kind of recognize and uh, kind of celebrate the articulation between our theory and concrete political practices yeah. in a way that will kind of relieve some of these doubts that we have. Because when we internalize that theory practice distinction, as you said, this anxiety presents itself immediately. Yeah. You know, I might add in there, I think, you know, talking about this agony of the tension between you know, the university or academia and society, I think that that's true of a subset of uh, faculty and a subset of students within academia. But I do think there's also this set of practices that are very clearly aligned in the university with essentially a market society outside. Yeah. And so I think, you know, our panel has kind of talked about, you know, sort of our, we've talked about the doubts that some of us have about the efficacy of what we do theoretically and how it then extends into practice outside the university to interrogate systems that many of us will just sort of naturally fall into because we have to earn bread, right? We have to feed families and ourselves. And so to me, I think we're, we're reliving many of the huge concerns that students back in the volatile 1960s had with the university. Um, and that is, that the university is becoming too much of a machine, right? And I know that we situate ourselves as counter-hegemonic, right? We're against it being a, a machine or an assembly line process. But I think the dominant you know, perception amongst many of us is that the university is contributing to churn out students for jobs, 
but without necessarily giving them identifiable skills to interrogate the market system they live in, to have the technologies they need in terms of building solidarity, um, active coalitions that might address both the excesses of capitalism that harm much of the world in the onset of climate change, that will only accelerate harm for marginalized people um, first, and then ultimately all of us, right? Um, so part of the problem I've seen, and this is maybe getting a little bit into uh, the weeds, but is that the university has been moving increasingly away from public funding. Um, we simply don't seem to want to pay to educate citizens anymore, to reflect on their systems, right? In the, U in the UC system, which is one of the biggest university systems in the world, a huge high-tech system, for instance, we've been seeing taxpayer funding sliced from 80% uh, back when I was in college in the 80s uh, to less than 50% today. And so what that, what that means to me, and this is where this question about like, what is academia and what might uh, we do to move after academia, right? Is that academia right now is in a space in which the public's divested from the university. And what that means is that students are footing the bills, uh, increasingly coming out with huge debt. And when that happens, the free space of the university to reflect on things that are not instrumental, to reflect on yeah. things that are not about getting a job and being able to pay, pay back the debt that they've acquired, um, is it becomes more difficult for them. And I think, you know, people don't feel like they have the, the privilege, I think, of being, uh, not being practical or market-oriented, which often means, I think, thinking very instrumentally about what they're learning. Um, but I think it's also compounded by a second thing, which is that universities have now to increasingly court funding from private donors. That's always been the case, right? But increasingly, that what that means is universities bombarded by private interests of pharmaceuticals that have rearranged the balance between the sciences and humanities. And all of us are in the humanities, and we like to think of ourselves as often interrogating some of the values under STEM, right? And, but that, that the money hasn't become moving in that direction. It's been moving in the other direction. And that, that means that we are all in some ways increasingly tied to corporate funding that shapes the practice of what we do and the relative weight of what the university judges the value of what we do. And, you know, I think it's kind of become almost common for us to say this at the Petrocultures uh, conference, but we're recording this podcast in the BP Canada Energy Room. And, I mean, part of what I guess I'm, I'm still thinking about is, like, it makes me wonder if we're so entangled in a masculinist market system that makes everything transactional, even in the university increasingly, and that doesn't know how to nurture the planet, that sidelines an ethic of care, you know. Just really quick, I think, to, to add on there, you know, you brought up kind of the, the 1960s moment, and, and that was the moment of uh, the institutionalization of black studies. Right, so the, you know, all the uh, student protests from the early 60s through the mid 70s um, were responsible for the establishment of the first uh, unit, units for studying black study in the states, right? And some of them were Africana studies, some of them were black studies, some of them were African American studies. Um, but the, the, the thing I think that's 
why that's such like an exemplary sort of field in, in this way is that uh, I think like a lot of, of energy sort of minded scholars, there's this idea that black studies <clears throat> is necessarily highly utilitarian, right? Like it has to be oriented towards social good and improvement in some kind of way or else it has no object in a way, right? But over the course of the last 60 years of its development, right, that of course hasn't stayed true, right? So there's mixed sort of, uh, the, the, the discipline is mixed insofar as its relationship to the academy and, and to outside of the academy, right? Like there are plenty of black studies scholars who would be totally fine if universities went under, right? And they would continue their work and they would not really be interrupted, maybe besides the sort of spatial uh, rearrangement that would be demanded, right? And then there are black studies scholars who are completely embedded in the system of, of you know, the disciplines, right? And those are the scholars who are gonna have a harder time, I think, like continuing their work after the crisis, I think, is, arrived you know yeah maybe if i could ask both of you a, a question that follows up on that that yeah. i just think is that both of you have posited is there a healthy relationship between the inside and the outside right that you're imagining yeah. and so we've you know you know in the worst case you've got the small liberal arts fairly homogeneous colleges in the midwest right that often have the college in the town Right. And it differentiates between the collegiates and the townies. Right. Which is that sort of terrible language of, of the past. But I think what both of you are saying is that there needs to be some sort of healthy relationship between the inside and the outside. Or maybe that those terms are not even useful to think about. I'm just curious. what totally. you're I think in the context of black studies, a lot of scholars would be averse to those terms. I think, you know, I think there would be there, there's a strong feeling that black studies does not just happen in classrooms and the evidence for that of course you know there's a lot of evidence for that but the, the most simple evidence for that is that there's been black studies since there were slave narratives right so <laughs> you know so there's kind of um, black studies is, is not tied to the university necessarily in a way right and and so it's it is both inside and outside i think at the same time and that's how people conceive of it right but um, to use kind of some of your language, Darren, there's the objective fact of these dis of these departments being part of institutions, right? So it's like as much as you want to be neither inside nor outside, there are objective structures that that are meant to keep you inside, right? Mm -hmm. That are meant to to close that that loop in a way. Right. Yeah, and I think that the inside outside distinction is part of what kind of assigns this particular credibility and authorizing right. value to the university as a knowledge production system and either erases or marginalizes or diminishes this like vast array of other knowledge producing um, practices and sites. Totally. And, and so this makes this question of like what happens when you adopt the inside-outside language? What work does that do to kind of reinforce that situation? Because in another way, we would say that in that period that you were just describing, Walter, this was a moment when the articulate, like where the outside was coming in. Yeah. Right? Demographically. Exactly. exactly. The outside yeah. was coming yeah. in. And in a way, I think one way to think about the, the response since then by more hegemonic kinds of forces is that they kind of said, okay, 
the inside-outside barrier has kind of broken down, and now we have to make sure our outside (laughs) moves in there so that it's not just these other outsides, the Black Studies outside, the feminist movement outside, the peace movement outside, the the, um, environmental movement outside, the communities themselves outside moving into the universities in a whole variety of ways in that period was was a real threat. Right, and so now what we're going to do is we're going to move the corporations inside. We're going to move the scientific research connected to more instrumental industrial goals inside, etc., etc. So this inside-outside trope is a key side of thinking about yeah. these dynamics. I think for sure. Okay, so I'm going to ask uh, Bob a question uh, now. Uh, so in our discussions, one of the things that you've suggested is that there's a kind of lag between uh, the material conditions of escalating environmental duress and environmental injustice and the kind of consciousness that's required to act collectively in response to those conditions. And you've said that one reason for this lag is the absence of a kind of common canon uh, that would allow us to kind of develop a collective response to those conditions. And you, and you call for like canonization as a political response to this situation. So I want to ask if you can tell us more about what canonization means for you, how you see it as a means of raising this consciousness that is required for collective environmental action, and how your idea of canonization can be distinguished from more conservative responses to the decanonization of the European tradition. Sure, thanks for that, Darren. Um, so, uh, first, the lack of a canon uh, did not cause climate change. Let's make sure <laughs> that's out there. And so, let me rephrase this uh, sort of provocative comment that I threw out there about canon and canonization. Uh, before I fall straight into a hole that I'll never dig myself out of, especially speaking as a white male, cisgender, middle-class academic, um, and a middle-aged academic as well. I'm just um, going to interrupt here and say, it would be a great thing to happen in a podcast if we could say, Bob Johnson fell into a hole that he dug for himself. <laughs> um, so let me just be clear here. I don't have any interest in restoring the canon. I have uh, uh, virtually no use for the writings of Harold Bloom, the most bombastic defender of restoring a canon of great literature. I have no interest, as he does, in teaching students that the old liturgy from Plato through Shakespeare to T.S. Eliot um, uh, is, is, is uh, the core that all students need to know to become educated, right? to uh, consider themselves, as they used to say, civilized. right? Uh, I'm not interested in his argument that literature can transcend time and space to train us into universal aesthetics of beauty, of the sublime, or whatever else that tradition values. Um, Bloom's work, I think, is only interesting to me as an example of how a Western elite has imagined its own set of values, its own provincialism, as being universal, right? Um, That's an object lesson to me. Uh, So I want to sidestep that pothole right away. Um, So what I am saying, I think, is that this earlier process of building a canon that was so robust was a certain type of project of community building that was intentional, 
It was the actual process of training citizens to read the world in certain ways, to inculcate certain values, certain ways of seeing, certain orientations to class, certain orientations to gender, certain orientations to race. It was, it was a way of building, if I can call on the theorist Benedict Anderson, uh, a, an imagined community into being, right? Um, or sustaining that imagined community is maybe a better way of putting it. Um, it was, to be sure, a sexist, masculinist, patriarchal, elitist, racist, and classist project. In short, it was reactionary. It was about maintaining the status quo rather than challenging it. But it was also, I think, sure as day, a conscious project to name a set of shared texts that, that spoke to the values that that group found important. So we've tipped over the old idols. We declared them false, and we needed to. But I think, and maybe you can go with me on this, we'll see, um, that when we did, we also stopped sitting around together to talk about what the shared text we think as a community uh, we need to have to speak to. What are the shared ideas that students taking a liberal arts curriculum should be grappling with? I'm, I'm wondering if there's some process by which we can sit down at the harvest table together to hash out some uh, shared set of principles, some shared set of texts that we can agree on, that we can announce to the world that these are some principles and some texts that we believe in in this community at this time for this crisis or this moment, you know? And I guess the question for me is can we do that in a democratic and a nurturing way where we intentionally invoke an imagined community um, that brings to table table in, a, in an equitable way the right voices, but that speaks to our values in this place in this particular time? Or is that just simply too fraught of a project? I would think it would be an interesting project for the three of us to sit down and try to map out, talk about not what I, I don't leave and talk about what I want to do in my class, but we talk about what I want to do in my class right. and what you think I might be doing. And I think we've sort of kind of gone to our caves and um, so I guess, I guess, you know, I'm, I'm, I want to end by saying maybe this. Um, I don't think we are doing our job by simply resting on the old refrain that we are teaching critical thinking in the classroom, right? Critical thinking can be put to good and it can be put to evil purposes. It is thus, I think, the university's equivalent of the invisible hand. The question is, what are we critically thinking about? What are the principles underneath our critical thinking? Are they advancing the cause of climate justice? Or are they simply reinforcing a future that will harm people when the sun beats down in the years to come? Anyways, that's kind of the way I was thinking about it. Um, it may be a useful uh, provocation. It might just be a pothole. So, uh... I just think this is a really great provocation, Bob, and, and I really appreciate the careful way in which you've expressed it and thoughtful way that you've expressed it. One of my responses when I hear how you describe both uh, the practice of canonization and also the, the aim of it or the value of it, one response I have to that is to say that at least when I look around among the, the, the students that I encounter, like at the graduate level and undergraduate level, I teach at a big, uni big university in a big city. 
I think it is happening. I think what you're describing is actually happening. And I think that like among my uh, feminist students, they're doing, they're doing canon making, right? And among my black students, they're doing canon making. My indigenous students are doing canon making. They're in a, in a way that just really feels like what you're describing. And they're, they're building it in interesting ways that do not conform to the way that we might conceive of canon building and even what the materials that might be included in it are. Right? It, it might include things that aren't books to read. <laughs> right? It might include other kinds of knowledge materials that are crucial to a conversation in community building uh, that is happening in an active, constitutive, community nurturing and establishing and dynamic even way. I think there's canon building going on all over the place. I think it's multiple canons. And I actually think that's good. I think the problem is not with canon making. I think the problem is with one canon and the historical fact that the one canon has been composed from one particular subject position. And so what I find exciting about the canon making that I see going on amongst these students that I have the pleasure to be exposed to and to encounter is uh, that I can sometimes hopefully find a way to be invited into that conversation <laughs> and learn from it, not necessarily to become a member of that community in, in the ways that we conventionally think about that, but at least to um, learn from the canon making that's going on to develop an appreciation of the, the kind of, I would say, political value of multiple robust self-organizing and defining communities being built through encounters with common literature, common art, common ideas, common practices of study, etc., etc. I just feel like it is going on. We just are positioned differently in relation to it than we, have, we, me and Bob, as white male scholars, uh, have been. And so we don't, maybe we don't see it. We still feel it as an absence, but it's not actually an absence. It's, it's just a kind of diverse, dynamic, unfolding, emergent presence that's actually always been there in the ways that... Uh, Walter was talking about before, but our institutions haven't been set up to make room for it, and we're slowly coming around to making room for that. And I just think that strengthens strengthens whatever the us is, rather than, than diminishing the us. Totally. I have two just quick um, thoughts. The first is I'm really interested in thinking about um, sort of uh, the materiality of the canon. Like, where is the canon? And what is it? Is it just a list of? Is it a list of books that's on a website? You know, is it a literal shelf of books? Right? Is it? Uh, does it want to avoid being represented in that in any kind of way like that? You know, um, and so I, I just think that that's sort of like um, an important part of canon quote unquote building. Right? Is what are you what are you building? You know, um, the other thought that I had was. Um, it's kind of a response to, to Darren uh, and thinking about how there's sort of like many things can become canonized. And for, for example, I was thinking about a, a class I taught 
at the University of Alberta where um, I had my students take a walk in uh, the River Valley and it was required and they had to write about it. Um, and why isn't that in the canon? <laughs> you know, right. like, like why is taking a walk not in the canon? <laughs> I'm serious, you know, like, like that's the sort of thinking I think that we need to be doing, right? I think, I think, I think that's great, the way that, you, that this has been reconstellated. Um, let, let me say this. So first, I think the neat thing about the provocation of talking about a canon, right, is that it has such resonance, right? And it calls up so many of the problematics we're all trying to face in sort of a radical participatory democracy that I think we all believe in, right? So I like the way you've shifted the locus mm. of formation to the student body. I think mm. that's a really interesting a way of doing this because the term canon is problematic, right? It comes from monotheism, it comes from essentially colonizing religions, <laughs> it comes from the idea of sort of a universal set of saints where there's this whole other religious topography we could call on that's, you know, pagan door gods, of river nymphs, all of this that are equally as powerful but more localized, right? Mm. I think what it does, what, I think the, the two lacuna there that are still worth thinking about though is so what is the role of the university a professor in doing that in creating the conditions by which solidarity can grow around a set of texts or an imagined community if we do endorse that as a as a project on some localized participatory democratic level Right, And then the other rub I think we have, and I think this is particularly a question in general education curriculum, like what do we think we're doing when we're teaching students outside of our disciplines, telling them, hey, this is you, you need to know all this stuff, right? Mm -hmm. That seems like a place we, we could be more intentional about the sandbox we're creating or whatever we think we're doing. Mm -hmm. The other question is, you know, I, I live in the United States. I live in a highly fractured political system in which people are having a difficult time talking across lines. Mm. And so when we do move back to our groups, right, like, is there a role for the university in making, bringing groups together and talking about not the text that people want to talk about in their groups, but text that might bring groups together. That, that's where I, that's where I'm just wondering. I honestly don't know what my job is on this anymore. Darren, I've got one for you. Uh, I wanted to ask you about critique and, and the, the kind of the role of critique. And, and this is, a, I think, falls closely on some of the stuff we've been talking about. Um, but uh, I think it's getting a slightly more specific. Um, you've expressed concern in your writing and, and elsewhere uh, about the fundamental and kind of contradictory links between criticism and the systems that they critique, right? Um, environmentalist critiques get, uh, you know, proffered by, for example, fossil fuel finance academics. So, you know, to take the sort of simplest and most immediately um, uh, relevant form, right? Um, what do you see as the, as the future of critique, right? Um, will critique persist as a practice past the end of the systems it targets, uh, or is there an end to critique, right? Is, is, is that a kind of goal in itself? Yeah, thanks for that question. Again, I think it's important to at least at the outset state or establish what I, what I mean by critique or what I think critique entails. So I would describe it as a 
like a scholarly, artistic, or intellectual practice that seeks to methodically uncover the operation and meaning of things, whether these are text, phenomena in the world, relations, structures, and to show how power is at work in them and how they are at work in power. Mm. So that's how I would define critique. There's lots of reasons to be suspicious of critique, right? It's, it's tendency to presume an underlying hidden cause. Uh, it's kind of reliance on or reproduction of the presumption of the authority, the detachment, the distance, the integrity of the method of the critic, right? Uh, which is, of course, associated with a particular, often with a particular kind of academic subject or scholarly subject, which is not as universal as it likes to think it is. Right? But still, despite those reasons to be kind of suspicious of critique, I still think that critique is and will remain an important scholarly and academic practice including in relation to questions of energy and environments, even as we admit and infirm, affirm that it's not the only or necessarily the best practice. I can't imagine why, in the time of the continued devastation of fossil capitalism and the time of continued fossil colonialism and environmental racism, we would not want to have something like critique in our bag of tools for understanding and resisting all of those things. So my concern really is instead with the status of critique, not as a scholarly or intellectual practice, but as a political practice. There's a long-standing tendency, I think, for scholars and intellectuals institutionalized in the academy or university to believe that their critical practice stands in for or suffices as or constitutes a political practice. A political practice that kind of relieves us of that agony I was talking about before, the agony of our material implication in the structures and relations that we otherwise purport to critique. And I think this tendency is particularly pronounced among academic critics who occupy relatively secure and privileged subject positions and material circumstances. People like me, who desperately want to believe that in just doing their jobs, they're doing politics. Uh, when in fact our critical practice is generally rewarded by the institutions that we otherwise seek to expose and critique. Uh, and also when our critical practices tend to provide those institutions with a kind of alibi for what is otherwise their destructive behavior. Because after all, look, Look at all these critics that we make space for and pay good salaries to, etc., etc. So under these conditions, the critical academic begins to experience another kind of anxiety, right? Not just the anxiety about that contradiction we were talking before, but often our, it's like, why is our critique not having the effect that it should have? If we think that our critical practice is a political practice, why isn't it having the political effect that it should have? Um, how do we translate and communicate our critiques in a way that reaches broader publics or activists or spurs actions or public officials or something like that? Right? My point is that if academics 
who do the important work of critique are anxious about their political inefficacy, then they should actually start doing politics. <laughs> right? And here I don't just mean like joining political movements and parties or running for office, etc. I mean doing the political work of struggling together with others to transform their own immediate structural situation and practices. Right? For academics, this means doing the work of transforming their practice and the institutional settings in which it takes place. The university, right? a very powerful institution of social reproduction, right? and a place in which they, or we, as academic subjects, still have considerable influence. Right? Uh, if only we resolved to do the arduous, uncertain, often unrewarding work right, of using that, what remains, that residue of institutional power that we still have as academics under systems of collegially governed institutions. Instead of defaulting right, to what I think I would now start calling the conceit of critique, that work, that political work that I've been describing, which can take place right in our immediate backyard, like right in our context. It, it doesn't go so much to the critical content of what we teach and write, but to the character of the practices and the infrastructures through which we do that. Right? There are many forms, I think, that such political activity could take. It could take the liberal form of just participating in collegial governance with subversive intentions. It could take the form, a more kind of resistant form of mass organizing to try to more firmly grasp the university's levers of power. Or it could take saboteurial and, and, and fugitive forms and parasitical forms right within the institution itself, creative non-compliance and generative refusal, etc. You know, I, I have my own views on which forms I like the best. Right? These are all different forms of being political in the context of the infrastructures and the institutions that we still, as at least working academics, still have some influence over. And the difficulty is that these forms of politics are forms, I would, I think, of um, auto-divestiture, to use a term from um, Stefano Harney and Fred Moen, forms of auto-divestiture that would comprise a kind of collective, gradual ending of what it currently means to be an academic, because the decarbonized, decolonized, anti-racist, queer university would not just be the same old university, except run on renewables and slightly more inclusive or whatever, right? It would be something else altogether. And so academic practice would also be something else altogether. And at a minimum, it might involve an academic and scholarly practice where critique, though it persists, is not the only or most privileged form of study knowledge-making and communication. The work we do in the classroom fundamentally helps to transform people's vistas, right? Their horizons, the ways in which they can look outward and the ways they can look inward. And it strikes me that it's working. It's not working in all the ways we want it to do. I don't think that we're very good at teaching class relations. I don't think we know very well how to unpack um, our entanglements in capitalism and the ways in which it's kind of bringing us. It's, it's the prevailing economic system that's bringing us to the edge of potential climate collapse, right? Like, I don't think we know how to inculcate those ways of seeing yet. But if I turn to like race and gender, 
I think that the critical work that we've been doing for, you know, years and years and that communities have been doing outside of the university, but I think that I don't want to underplay what's been done in the university. Um, I mean, we now have, uh, I know it's a bit of a bugaboo, but in Florida, right, uh, we have a, a governor who is trying to undo all of the teachings that came out of what is now being termed derogatively critical race theory, but that has been taught as, you know, critique for, for decades, right? And I think that, so I think that the ways in which we're, we're moving between sort of this question of theory and praxis um, is actually occurring and that I don't feel essentially very demure about that. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's altering K through 12 curriculum. I think it's doing a lot of stuff. Um, but anyways, but maybe not in a way that is satisfying to us in that we see the immediate impact. Um, teaching African-American literature is perhaps unique in so far as uh, you're asking your students to basically most of the time bear witness to uncountable horrors, right? Um, the African-American literary canon is bleak in many ways, right? Which is, shouldn't sort of be surprising, right? Um, and that worries me. When I teach African-American literature in the environment, um, because of what I just said, I really try to bring a kind of balance um, to the classroom between kind of horror and beauty, right? And, and to put it simply, I, there's moments, I think, where I try to make room for hope. Um, the, the black eco-critical tradition uh, has developed like a really solid image of, of the complex and sort of multifarious relationship that black people in the Americas bear to the land, right? Um, uh, black Americans uh, relate to the environment sort of mediated through histories of slavery, lynching, um, the overexposure to natural disasters, right? And chemical runoff, right? That's, and that goes throughout, you know, the, the, the centuries of, of black presence in the new world. Um, but I also sort of try to emphasize texts where black people have deep and engaging um, relationships with the natural world that allow them to um, not necessarily transcend like the 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 um, what seems like a fundamental link between sort of horror and the land, right? But that lets them move that horror somewhere else, right? And 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 put in its place autonomy right and a sort of autonomous relationship um, to the, the natural world I think a really good example of this would be something like Jamaica Kincaid's a garden book uh, and and what's so incredible about it is that uh, Kincaid who's from Antigua uh, is able to balance her knowledge of the coloniality of botany meaning she's able to recognize that when she enters a garden in Antigua most of the plants are not native to Antigua. In fact, they're from Europe and all over the place, right? She's able to sort of reconcile that and how that is a kind of violence in itself with the joy and purpose that cultivating a garden brings her, right? It's like having a critical understanding of something that you love can, can let you do both, you know? And, and that's, I think, you know, really kind of powerful, I would say. Another example that kind of came to mind immediately is uh, Toni Morrison's A Mercy, um, which is a historical novel that's set in, I guess, the 
1500s, perhaps, yeah. Um, And it's a historical novel about the sort of initial formation of racial slavery in America. Um, It's it's a a horrible story, right? It's a story of a horrible, the beginning of something really horrible that we're still sort of living through today, right? Um, But it's also a, a book about kind of the formation of contingent communities among, you know, in a space of horror, right? It's also a novel about how a heterogeneous group of people with conflicting views, conflicting histories, are able to come together in order to provide a measure of safety for themselves, right? In a hostile world, you know? And I think that is something positive, again, you know? And and is something that my students can take as a kind of, like, tool in a way, right? the, the kind of limits to, to, to uh, literary as I see it are exactly that kind of conceptualization of the tool, right? Because I am very reticent to say um, that teaching literature has a utilitarian purpose, right? I think it, it, it can, um, but it depends on the person, you know, it depends on, on the scholar. And, and you know, like, I, I think you'd be hard pressed to find an African-Americanist who's not interested in politics, right? But it, it could happen, <laughs> you know? And like, and I think that that's, that's not something that should be sort of like frowned upon. I think that there's, there should be space for kind of this actually purely sort of aesthetic um, uh, work with these things that are obviously political, you know? And, and, you know, sort of sucking the politics out of it and turning it into an aesthetic experience is kind of an empowering activity in itself. That's really cool. The image that came up for me was W.E.B. Du Bois's uh, debate with Booker T. Yeah. And him talking about, he's like, Booker T. Washington is at least publicly presenting the idea of, you know, the African-American community reading the right. classics as being, you know, sort of a, an endeavor that doesn't fit right. within life experience. And so I think what you said has just called up so many questions to me. It's like, cause it's making me wonder now, like how did W.E.B. Du Bois, who was an amazing activist, right? Yeah. Imagine that question of reading at that point, he was talking about the canon, right? Yeah, totally. And the way you're thinking about, you know, literature, reading in your classroom, becoming a utilitarian act potentially is really, it's just really fascinating to, a problematics to think through. Totally, and I, I think that that goes, I think it's really sort of pertinent that you bring up the sort of Du Bois-Washington debate because that is sort of at, at the heart of so many of these arguments about black studies, right? Because what that argument was about, right, was not whether black people should be educated or not. It was, should they be educated, like you're saying, in the sort of Western educational way, or should they get vocational training so that they can secure their place in uh, in a, a newly sort of opened up uh, economic society, right? And that's an I think like a completely open debate still, <laughs> you know, like like I, I think that it never was solved, you know, and I think that there's a reason why people still think about that, right? I think it's less probably framed now as sort of like vocational college versus liberal arts or something like that, but there's certainly still an incredibly powerful um, conflict going on in black studies and in, in African American literary studies, right? Between sort of thinking about um, learning this stuff as personally enriching in some kind of way, 
and and in some kind of way sort of making you a better subject capitalist subject or something like that right or that you're learning how to see things in a way that will allow you to be part of the process of dismantling um, and building a new so yeah exactly yeah the other thing that i really appreciated uh in your response walter is just this like when i'm thinking about it in the context of something like environmental communication or climate communication you know there's often now under under conditions of perceived imperative and, and um, emergency in certain discourses about how we should respond to that culturally or in like in communication practices. We need to simplify things. We need to kind of right. make, you know, either or kind of switch on, switch off kinds mm-hmm. of messages and uh, stark consequences. And, and what you narrated was exactly the opposite, that actually no, we need to add more complexity. <laughs> like in there, I don't mean just the complexity of of different voices coming from you know the previously uh, silenced or marginalized um, uh, constituencies and communities. I mean like actual like moral and spiritual and political complexity that says, well, you can experience devastation and possibility at the same time. You yeah. can live in mourning and live in joy at the same time. You can. Uh, you can process violence and persistence at the same time, and that's actually what it means to live under conditions of environmental duress. Yeah, like just that addition totally. of complexity that's coming from the literature you described to me is like very corrective to certain kinds of reductive ideas about what's needed in the current moment. Yeah, it feels like a tool for survival in the way that you just kind of described it, right? It's, it's that it's, it's a, a way of being that's sort of become necessary, right? Yeah. Because we're always going to be experiencing terror and happiness, always. Has anything changed for you in the course of this conversation? Have you walked away thinking any differently about the role that academia or you can play in a politics get, to get beyond oil and its entanglements? So the one thing, both in this conversation and in the broader conversations that we've been having, is just the, 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 what I would describe as a kind of beautiful reminder to uh, continually uh, remind myself that thinking about what it means uh, to be and to do academic, to be an academic and to do academic work and to carry out academic practices under conditions of environmental duress and injustice can't proceed from a kind of easily presumed universal position and what it means to be an after academic or something like that is to be constantly attentive to the kind of irreducibly situated differently oriented character of experience and subjectivity and to be constantly aware of my own limited positionality in relation to the way i process these crucial questions the, the, the thing that sort of made me uh, rethink my, my feelings the most is probably the conversation we had about canons. Because I, I think, you know, I, I uh, am a slightly younger scholar. I think I came up in a time where the canon was really already kind of an island in certain ways, right? Like when I was at Columbia, the, it's, it, the library there has like all the Homer, Herodotus, all these people like written in stone <laughs> above the library, right? And one of my students uh, in the writing class was part of uh, a group that put a big banner above all of that, that just had names of, you know, people of color and queer writers and stuff like that, right? So Gloria Anzaldua and Octavia Butler and all kinds of people. 
right? And so I came up in a period where that was like already heavily sort of like going on. But I do totally see the benefits that can come from a shared reading list, right? <laughs> in the simplest way, right? Like I, I definitely feel like there are, like, there are things that can come out of sharing texts and or even explore experiences, right? Um, so that, that was, I think, just really sort of mind-opening for me. Yeah, I mean, definitely for me too. I mean, I think one thing, and I haven't figured out how to say it yet, is just like this question of thinking through the intentionality of what we do. Mm. It's just bringing in your voices, but then the other voices of the workshop we've been in, and then your comments about like, you know, when we're talking about setting an agenda on say, you know, a syllabus, or we're talking about an agenda for a curriculum, or what the trope we were using was the canon. Right. One of the things that you made me think about, you both made me think about, is what's the locus of agency? Like, am I prioritizing my agency or the agency of my profession? Uh, maybe could be read as class as well. Um, you know, and you know, how do we work through that problematic? So that one, that one's going to lead me thinking. The other thing I kind of thought was just more broadly, I think, what I've learned throughout the workshops we've been in here, um, that we've attended, is that I've always had this default masculinist tendency to believe that I'm not being active enough, that was the language we used somewhere else, that I'm not being productive enough, right? Because I prioritize visible action in the public sphere, outside the university, things that are tangible products, right? When much of what I actually do on a day-to-day -day basis, in and out, day in day in and out is a type of more intimate nurturing inside the university working to try to create safe spaces for students to reflect rather than just jump and act into into the marketplace or something working to introduce students to new possibilities and perspectives that they just can't get in the more instrumental world of you know acquiring bread and sustenance, right? Where they can explore larger versions of our, of themselves that might help to extract, extract them and us from practices that have put us on the ledge of a precipice, you know, that I think is looking into a future that's gonna be altered by climate change. 